Hey everyone, and welcome to the Everything Went Black podcast. It's with great pleasure I welcome our next guest, video artist Zev Deans of Panorama Programming. You might have seen some of his work with the Messe Noir behemoth video, uh, work with Chelsea Wolfe, the nightmarish Portal Curtain video, one of my favorites actually. And um, so yeah, uh, Zev's here in the studio and uh, we're going to have a nice chat. Before we get rolling, I just want to bring to everyone's attention that I'm in the middle of the Savage Gold Cold Press GoFundMe. So um, if you're interested in donating, you can uh, look it up on the GoFundMe page and uh, look up Savage Gold Cold Press. Um, trying to launch this this fall. And anyone out there who is a lover of cold press coffee, um, please check it out. And um, if you can't donate, uh, please share it on your social media. This episode, as well as all episodes, gets a little bit of help from Datsusara, your go-to source for all things hemp. And we also get help from Onnit, everything you ever want for human optimization. If you're interested in either one of these things, you can check out the portals that I have on everythingwentblackmedia.com. Just go to the site, look over to the portals, click through, and uh, check out all the great products they have available. I'd like to thank everyone who's been uh, checking out the podcast. And also, please, if uh, you enjoy the episode, leave a star rating on iTunes, as well as a brief review if you see fit. If you want to get at me on Twitter, it's at MikeHillHQ. And here we go. For the Stig effects, this is great. I was like almost falling asleep before you showed up. That's why I made some coffee. That's this fucking the barometric pressure from the rain. <laughs> Which we can talk about the entire entirety of this, the science of sleep and storms. But yeah, they always make me tired. Yeah, it's funny because um, you know I was been up pretty early every day and uh, you know been running around all day long doing stuff, and then uh, well, I sat down in that chair and like around four thirty, I actually dozed off for like ten or fifteen minutes. It was one of those things where you, when you fall asleep and you don't even realize that you're sleeping. And um, I was watching the uh, latest episode of Preacher on iTunes and uh, my eyes just started getting smaller <laughs> and like my field of vision got narrower and narrower. And then like next thing I know, it was like, it was like time travel, like 10 minutes into the future. And when I opened my eyes, it was like 10 minutes later. I'm like, wow, I better make some coffee because <laughs> um, I have a pretty long night ahead of me doing stuff. So, so here we are. <laughs> Well, when you make your own coffee, it's a, it's a nice thing to have around. This uh, interview is brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee. <laughs> try, it, try it with a sandwich or just by itself. You'll love it either way. Savage Gold Coffee, available at... I don't know where it's available at. Uh, yeah, it's a, great, it's a great promo, man. We just cut our own promo for this. Yeah. yeah. So um, I've been following your work for a while now. Oh, shit, we're starting. <laughs> yeah, it's already started, man. We're here. And... uh. Savage gold. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hold on. All right. Sorry. No, it's cool. This is my second interview ever. This isn't really an interview. It's more just like a conversation of okay, like, cool. uh, you know, casual discussions about, you know, certain things. But uh, the, uh, the sort of mini epics that you create that match up with songs has been like a you know, really stuck out 
Because, I mean, you know, in, in the, to the types of artists that you work with, there's generally not a whole lot of uh, money to go around. I mean, you know, you see, like, yes, you know, I mean, you know how it is. There's, like, limited budgets. You know, even bands that, you know, have perceivable, perceivable fame, when it comes down to uh, having a video budget, which is not, there's no, no real return in, on investment in that. It's not like they can calculate money coming back. Labels are very reluctant to throw down a lot of money. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that maybe an, an, um, an exception to that might be Behemoth, right? Those guys are genius businessmen. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's all about merch, folks. Musicians, uh, it's, all about, it's all about merch. That, that I know painfully well, yeah. definitely. And, and the exchange rate in Poland, I was just there. Very nice. So those guys can do what they do and be, be comfortable and branch out into other things. But it's because they've been working hard at it for, I don't know, how many years? I mean, those a long guys time, are, man. It's been like they've earned it. You know, maybe some people years. some people get lucky, but those guys earned it, hundred yeah. percent. You know, and they have like a very um, well defined aesthetic. And um, I mean, since we're talking about Behemoth, uh, did they find you, or did you find them, or how did that actually uh, work? Yes, they found me. Oh, they did. Um, uh, as with a lot of things, uh, someone showed them the portal video, and then um, and then that was that was how they found out about me, and then. I think Nurgle contacted me on Facebook, actually. Really? Facebook.com. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is like a completely different world that was created in that video. And when I look at the credits, I mean, there's like 20, you know, or 30 people that worked on that. Uh, so, I mean, there was, you know, we built models and there was some CGI, I think. It was a little CGI. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Madeline Quinn, the genius. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was probably the largest crew I had ever worked with, and it was still, uh, for comparison's sake, to most pr- productions, very small. Um, for the majority of that project, I'd say maybe there was about me and maybe two other people helping build things, um, and then and then Madeline and I did the VFX at the end. So um, that's kind of when I first worked with a few people that I've worked with since and developed a crew. Um, Rebecca Lack... Beatrice Sniper and Madeline Box and Quinn, um, very uh, talented people that I was able to meet under those circumstances and continue to work with. But before that, I did everything myself, and oh, I wow. still I still do a lot of the projects entirely by myself or with maybe one or two people. Did you shoot that in Poland, or was that shot here in the states? Uh, that was shot here in the states. Oh. Yeah, I mean mo- most of it. Uh, I mean that was. Nurgle came to right down the street, uh, India. Oh, wow. When, when I had that studio. Um, he didn't come to India. India is the name of a street. Uh, but, um, yeah. For those of you who are not familiar with all the streets in, in uh, Greenpoint, India Street is literally a block and a half, one block away from where we're sitting, and maybe a half a block up the street to the space that, uh, that Zeb is talking about. And uh, he, he came through, and um, we did all the stuff with him in a day. Um, but it took a lot of prep and uh, brilliant costume work by Sharon Eamon of Toxic Vision, who uh, was uh, a very, very um, incredible collaborator for that project. And yeah, so that, you know, miniatures were built there as well. And then we shot, um, there's actually, we shot a second series of events with, uh, and a lot of people probably did not notice this at all, but there is a body double in the Behemoth video. And okay. Chuck, Chuck Barrett's played a few villains in my videos. And oh, all right. For this one, he was, um, he was, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the video, the song is Messe Noir, which um, 
means black mass. Okay, so the concept of the video, did, I mean, uh, you know, was was there like a storyboard, or you know, did you write something out, or was there? Yeah, yeah, you know, I kind of, um, I just sort of came up with with that. I, at the time, um, I was heavily under the influence of H.R. Giger. Um, I mean, I've always been um, obsessed, but but I was working on, um, I was working with the Giger estate to sort of like unearth these uh, rare films that no one has seen um, that have been sh- sitting in his like garage for yeah. years. Um, and I was working with his agent, Leslie Barony, on um, like basically, basically restoring a lot of these films that have never seen the light of day and certainly never been screened in the U.S. So I was in the process of doing that. Um, and we were setting it up for the Museum of Art and Design. And uh, so that was just like, that was just in my subconscious the whole time. Um, and, and the concept... The concept just came from a loose, like, okay, well, like, we've seen how many black masses have we seen in metal music videos? Like, how can we turn this on its head and do something a little more surreal, um, a little more otherworldly? And uh, Giger kind of led the way on that one. And I, I definitely would have loved more time on that project. Um, there was a, that was my first time working with someone else doing post. I mean, I did a lot of it with her, but she definitely led the way on, on that stuff. And, um, I wish I had more time to work with her because we both had a lot of great ideas that we didn't even really have time to flesh out. Um, but she made, she still made amazing time with what she had. Yeah. And the fact that it got done at all is a miracle. But, um, but yeah, people seem to like it. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the, the coolest things about that video is the, the sense of scale that it has. Um, I mean, it has this sort of cosmic scale and even the, the things that are perceived as being interior have these very cavernous, like, you know, massive sort of feels to it. But I mean, in reality, how much space do we, are you guys actually dealing with? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, they, um, that's exactly the, a testament to, to how uh, the power of miniatures. Um, all that stuff's made by hand. Um, I, made, I made that with the help of Rebecca Lack and uh, another friend, Zachary Ezrin. Um, He's in that band Imperial Triumphant. Um, but yeah, um, basically, that whole structure, that chasm thing, it's like a hexagon, um, that was basically like nine feet tall. And so Chuck would go inside of it. He played those parts. He played Nurgle during those scenes. Okay. So he would like rise up with the horns. And um, we also used a wide angle lens to help sort of suggest the, the nature of the scale for that. That plus some some like camera movements with a jib, and you can really create the feeling of uh, perspective. And when you look at something like that, I mean, they would assume it's either digital or much bigger than it is. And that like we found a space that looks like that because no one in their right mind would cut tiny little planks of balsa wood for days on end <laughs> to build something like that. And that's how we get most people is that. Uh, no one thinks that someone would do something that stupid or crazy. Yeah, I mean, for that amount of time on a music video budget. <laughs> but that—that's like what makes. I mean, it, it's no—it's no secret that. I mean, personally, I think that uh, when you look at special effects, like when you watch, you know, Alien or, um, yeah, actually, Alien's a great example. Also, with the Giger tie into that. I mean, that's the one I always use for. You can't yeah. beat a model versus like something that is like, you know. I, I mean, the technology for CGI just isn't quite there yet to make things look believable and have like a physical like impact the way models do. 
Um, even with the HD, like looking at stuff in HD, sometimes people comment that, oh, well, you know, you can see that. Nah, fuck that. It looks awesome. You know, yeah. even, even Terminator looks yeah. great. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that was Stan Winston um, for Terminator. Um, handmade effects, there's just, yeah, there's nothing like it. Um, when you see a movie like Alien, it, it hits your subconscious in ways that... Um, it just couldn't if it was tried. If they tried to do it digitally, I think. I think when something's made by hand, it's believable. Um, even if it's not believable, there's still a charm to it that is. Um, it's uh, it's palpable, you know. Yeah. Um, I was ju- just you know as a joke. I went to we were we were looking for just some mindless entertainment yesterday, and I went with my with my fiance to see uh, Independence Day just because it was in the theaters. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh-huh. And we're talking you know a massive budget. Um, probably probably a couple hundred people working on special effects and cgi and we had forgotten we'd seen that movie by the evening you know we saw it in the afternoon and did a bunch of other stuff walked around the city and like forgot that it even happened because nothing sticks to your subconscious um when you see movies like that I mean, I'm sure. I mean, there are some there are some brilliant uses of CGI I've seen. I mean, there's Under the Skin is is probably one of my favorite movies oh, yeah. I've seen in uh-huh. the last like five years, and that is a brilliant and subtle use yep. of that. But I agree with you completely, and I intend to dedicate my life's work to the fact that practical effects really do something that I mean, that's why those movies still last. Um, but yeah. Another video that aside, I mean the portal video is probably you know that that one like the first time I saw that 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 stuck well into my it seeped its way into my nightmares man that that video thank you the, that's you know, the, the best video possible yeah, <laughs> yeah. but the thing that really sets apart your work is the concept because there's that nom video star child yeah okay you know which it's I'm watching deep, this the deep cut and I'm like I'm like thinking I'm like this is uh you know we got set. Osiris and um, Chuck Barrett is in that one as well. He plays Set. Oh, really? Yeah. This is he's my reoccurring villain. Cool. Yeah, you, you mentioned he plays a villain. We got Set, Osiris, and um, what's the other the goddess? Oh, um, Isis. Yeah. And then Horus, mm-hmm. the reincarnation of yeah. of Osiris, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm watching this, and you know, I little I know a little bit about Egyptology and yeah. <laughs> something I might have read. A couple of books about here and there. You know, it's something that I'm, you know, I I like. I'm interested yeah. in that. And I was like, "Holy shit, man! This is like, you know, a pretty heavy duty storyline here. <laughs> you know, and I, you don't see that every day in videos. You know, and I'm just like, you know, did once again was that like a concept that you came up with? Yeah, the band? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was, um, and there's some there's some little references in there um, to this, but at the time, then I was. Um, I was really, I was sort of discovered through the help of a couple friends and, um, and a couple of like really ridiculous sort of black holes into the internet. Um, I was just sort of falling in love with Jack Parsons and the history of, um, the formation of NASA and the Egyptology like he was, he was very much interested in this and a lot of the symbolism in NASA's, um, uh, mission logos. Yeah. You'll see a lot of that. Um, the guy who led Apollo 11 mission. Um, he was the son of an ancient, uh, like an Egyptologist, like a, he, he was Egyptian and yeah. he was the son of an Egyptologist who was um, very much into sort of like the more occult side of the spectrum of Egyptology and like the history of 
Egyptian ritual and sky worship and sun worship. And so there's a lot of strange things tucked into um, a lot of the logos for NASA around that time. Um, not to mention um, Jack Parsons' deep involvement with the occult and Crowley's obsession with Egyptology. Um, so all that stuff was kind of mixing together for me at that time. And when, um, when I talked to Ryan from NAM, um, he was like, you know, the song, he, he had a basic concept for the song, which was just like, which is really cool. Just this sort of like this alien who's on earth and is lost and he's wandering the woods. And, and I sort of took that and ran with it and found a way to meld it with all these other elements, star child. So like, you know, the constellation Orion is, is Osiris. In, in Egyptology, and the star Sirius is um, is actually uh, representing Isis, yeah. And so you have this sort of like uh, ancient uh, Egyptian battle in the stars, you know, this kind of thing going on that uh, worked its way into also. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of NASA references too in the video, so yeah, so definitely. It's been a while since I've had to think about it, so I'm uh -huh. sounding pretty jumbled, but yeah. um, it's all tucked in there. If you yeah, it, it really works with the music too. I mean, the music's just like very psychedelic, kind of you know trippy, heavy rock, you know, if yeah. you will. And uh, they have they had a pretty classic sound. Yeah, definitely, point. man. Yeah. I, I uh, my the band I play in. I remember we played with them many years ago uh, at Europa. And uh, a club I which I don't thing. even think really does shows anymore. It's like of that style. Now least. they're like a um, like a techno. Yeah, it's like, like a, a dance yeah. club more yeah. or less. Um, yeah, it was like one of these like there was a series of shows back then called New uh, New Wave or Brooklyn Heavy Metal, and uh, I think the end that record label had something to do with putting those on. And we played it. We played on a bill with them, and that's when I first heard about Nam. And I saw this video maybe a couple maybe a year after that. And, and that's um, how I first met Dave Castillo as well. Oh really? Oh okay. Yeah. Yeah, Dave's Dave's been around doing stuff for a while. Yeah, Dave's been on the podcast a couple times actually. Yeah, um, you know he's a good friend. He helped helped me out personally quite a bit. Um, you know, with the music that I that I play, the music I'm involved with. He's uh, been a good friend to the band and and has uh, very been one of our biggest proponents in in you know establishing ourselves here. And, and Dave's you know all around great guy. And you can find him at such wonderful establishments like Over the Eight and St. Vitus Bar Yeah, in Brooklyn, New yeah, York. I've been to Over the Eight a few times, like in the early evening. Like I'm not really like a, a bar guy, really. But yeah. I've, I've seen him at Vitus because I go to tons of shows all the time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but that video, when I st first started checking that out, I, I just got, I was like very much intrigued by a lot of the imagery. And also some of the things about it were... Uh, there's like a Alessandro Jodorowsky like vibe to it, and like uh, Kenneth Anger. Damn, thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I'm not was, there yet, but I'll take it. Is that so, is that a, a filmmaker that you you've been into at all, or both of them? Like Holy uh, Mountain, deeply. Yeah. yeah, both of them were were huge influences to me from the age of maybe like 15 on. Um, I had the I had the luck of having a very culturally artistically um, enriched upbringing. My mom is a film and art obsessed. And my dad is a musician and music obsessed, and so here I am. Yeah, but, yeah, but um, but yeah, um, I had I had uh, a really great video store in my hometown, Norfolk, Virginia, as well, and uh, went there all the time and ended up working there. Um, and so I just got a very early film education, and Kenneth Anger and Jodorowsky were absolutely a big staple for me once I sort of came of age. 
I think a lot of the color, like the color in the, um, you know, there's a lot of the footage that's on in, on the top of a mountain and the band performing. The color of that palette reminds me a lot of like Jodorowsky's films. Like mm-hmm. if you watch Holy Mountain or something mm-hmm. like that, it has that same sort of look to it. And then, you know, the Kenneth Anger, uh, once again, Anger being very much into Crowley and, you know, all the occult and that sort of Egyptian angle like oh, yeah. got played out in that video too. And um, yeah, that, that's the one that really kind of drew me in. And then later, like the the behemoth stuff you know because yeah. like i'm way more into like that style of music per se yeah even though i you know i appreciate bands like nom like the the death metal black metal stuff is like more what i listen to regularly um and it's been an exciting one for me to sort of tackle because there, there's a lot of um there's a lot of great music videos out there for for every other genre of music and there's a few wonderful music videos for heavy music but um i feel like you don't see them that often and um for me, it was a chance to like, okay, I've been a fan of this stuff and a, a participant in this scene for a long time, um, and I, I'd love to take a crack at it visually. You know, I, I uh, never really occurred to me that I would take that direction. You know, something I grew up with, and then when I came to New York, I feel like I just got into a lot of different things and a lot of different scenes. And my first music video is actually for um, Geneva Jacuzzi, who's uh, Ariel Pink's girlfriend at the time, and so like I was trying to break into this entirely other different music scene but my roots kind of took over after a while and uh, even that video has like some egypt oh yeah you know, that's very that's it. a very kenneth anger and yeah. ken russell yep. kind of vibe that definitely one. yeah i mean it's incredibly amateur but, i mean as a lot of my stuff is but yeah it's uh it's it's uh still i still love that one because of it still delivers a narrative you know loosely but and comically but it's there yeah anyone out there who's like you know, perusing uh, Zeb's page, his uh, YouTube channel, uh, definitely check that one out because it's uh, it's it's visually interesting and also um, the song's kind of cool. You know, it's like this electro. Well, she's amazing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm not familiar with the artist at all until I saw the video. Yeah, yeah, she's um, she's kind of like uh, it's like if you found a cassette tape of like Madonna on one side, early Madonna, and like Devo on the other side, and like it drenched it in vampire blood or something. That's what it would sound like. She's really, really awesome. Are you um? Are you, so you came to New York? So where are you from originally? I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, my my mom's side of the family is from Brooklyn. Um, so I would come here a lot. So I've always kind of felt like this is a second home, and now it's my first home. But so how how long have you been actually living here? I've been here for eleven years. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, something like that. You're, you can say you're from Brooklyn, I guess. Yeah, yeah that you can works. consider yourself a New Yorker if you're here for more than 10 years, I guess. You know? Yeah. Um, did you, uh, st- I'm, this is like a, you know, did you study film or any model making or anything like that? No. Um, I uh, basically kind of had like a, I don't know, like a, yeah, art education, I guess. Um, I was I was in two different schools and, um kind of the second one was a really insane sort of hippie school in like Asheville, North Carolina, Warren Wilson College. Asheville's and, uh, a pretty hippie town. It's a very hippie town. Uh, so I was I was an odd man out there, but it was beautiful. And uh, they kind of let me do whatever I wanted with the major. So um, it was one of those schools, you know. <laughs> so like, uh, so basically I just kind of, at, at that time in college, I was like, uh, my, my, I think my art project was like, a, I had a fake pharmaceutical company. 
Um, then I made advertisements for it and like products and stuff and like got the school really angry because they thought an actual pharmaceutical company oh, right. was like like working with the school Funny to advertise on campus. Yeah, <laughs> it was called Prozoft. Um, but yeah, like so so film kind of um, happened later just by accident. I had messed around with video um, horribly um, a few times in school, but never um, never really latched on to it. Started out um, in New York in the, more of the art world. Really, I, I worked for I like interned for Matthew Barney, oh, and then okay. um, ended up working at Deitch Gallery for a while, and then uh, and then one thing led to another, and I like flipped out and decided I needed to start making my own stuff, and ate ramen for years, and just like <laughs> basically slowly started to fall into video by accident. The model building stuff, though, did that did that spring out of like you know your art background, like yeah. working with your hands, like tactile yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, always been, I've, I've always done drawing, and um, I've always messed around with sculpture and uh, costume a little too. And then uh, it just kind of happened again. Um, I think uh, it, I could I could credit back everything I can credit back to my parenting of some sort. I had a really wild sort of nerdy, but like brilliant stepdad who um and one of the one of the pastimes when i was still like a kid and i was playing with gi joes and stuff uh we'd go to um like the dumpster of an art arts and crafts store and get all the like mat board and foam core okay and he'd show me how to use like a hot glue gun and i'd make all these giant oh, like wow. structures and That's stuff cool. so that definitely is i mean the hot glue gun is almost my weapon of choice now <laughs> it definitely carried on as well so the uh are you an Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe fan as well? Because that Portal <laughs> video, man, is, you know. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, yeah, as a kid, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and um, I think um, for, uh, for Portal, for that project, they, they had, you know, at the time, they had a lot of Lovecraftian imagery um, woven in and out of a few of their albums. And, uh, and I was like, well, what's the root of Lovecraft? Because everyone's going to expect Lovecraft, but, like, what is the root of that? And the root of that, and I think, I, I don't remember where I read this, but he was heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe's Conqueror Worm um, as a kid. And it's like, it's like one of the most nihilist poems you can read out there. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a great premise that basically suggests, like, all, all, we, all we know in life is that we're going to die. And uh, all the, the powers that may or may not be above us watching like they're helpless to change it and all they can do is watch they're like an audience you know and so i felt like that was the most um kind of like a throwback thing i could do to like pay homage both to portal's interests and like to where some of the roots of that may come from and like again like i guess the thread i'm i'm starting now that i've done enough work mm -hmm. to start to look back at everything and start to suss out like a pattern yeah i'm seeing more and more that like oh i'm like illustrating all these like very old stories like Salome in the first video I did that's like an old biblical story that then Oscar Wilde did a great version of and then like um, Edgar Allan Poe and then all the Egyptian Egyptian stuff and like the Crowleyan stuff you know basically ancient history and the like turn of the century reinterpretations of it um, and then I seem to be like regurgitating them in the millennium now so yeah yeah it's actually like a, there's there's a uh you know, with with like the 2012 phenomenon and the concept that we're, you know, veering into like this new epoch, um, there is almost like a, re a cultural review 
of ancient civilizations going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, like, are you familiar with Alex Gray at all? Like the artist? I've met him, yeah. Oh, he really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to meet that guy. Um, again, this is Giga related, but uh, he came to, I met him when his daughter was doing a screening at Spectacle Theater. Um, and I was planning to do the Giger stuff at Spectacle as well, so I told him about it. I just like was like, all right, fuck it, I just want to shake this guy's hand. Yeah. And I had met him before, but I, of course he wouldn't remember me, but back when he had uh, Cosm. Yeah, you know, down 20, here in 27th Street, yeah. right? Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember running into him there and uh, being one of the many people desperately trying to like shake his hand back then. But um, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a nut. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, I've, I've been up to the Cosm that's been in uh, the one in Wappinger's Falls, up, up you know about an hour and a half from here. I've been up there a number of times. Yeah, and uh, you know he has these full moon ceremonies, and he's building like this very uh, interesting community of people up there. And uh, I was thinking about him recently, and how you know there's this Maya concept of you know this new epoch, and like. He's he's like projecting his this, co- this cosm idea as like a religion, but that's not like what you would think of as a religion, where there's, you know, the set rules and suppression and repressing people. It's like an all-inclusive religion that just assumes that there's like a, um, you know, some sort of amorphous, you know, higher power. And one of the things I was thinking about how this relates to, uh, you know, this, you know, the the end of the long count or whatever you want to call it is <laughs> right. is how um. You know, some people thought that the whole Mayan calendar thing was not necessarily an apocalypse, but it was just a changing of uh, consciousness. And I kind of feel like in some ways that Alex Gray's sort of reinterpretation of religion falls within that idea of like a change of consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. and how this sort of, you know, when I, whenever people say religion, I get nervous, honestly. You know, I, I don't really, well, at, at all, I think religion primarily has... Uh, you know, caused a lot of pain for people and suppressed a lot of people and caused wars and death and strife and, you know, all these horrible things. So for Alex Gray to kind of reclaim that word and reframe it in like a more positive, inclusive manner is definitely like sort of like a revolutionary idea. And I don't know, like it just, it suddenly, it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, 2012 was like, you know, what, four years ago. And if, wheels had been put in motion for like a new epoch i feel like alex gray is kind of like at least on this planet in this reality in this version of the cosmos <laughs> might might actually turn out to be like somebody who's actually you know a linchpin in some sort of consciousness change you know so i don't know it's just a concept <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean he's um i definitely love his early work and um i definitely probably have a more of like a I think it's called like cosmic pessimism <laughs> but uh I definitely have um less of a uh I don't know yeah I don't know enough about what he's been up to lately um to to be able to comment on that but I definitely think that um religion as a practice is probably going to yeah, I don't know. We can cut this. Oh no, I have nothing no, to dude, say I mean, about any of that. I, I can. I know where you're. I have a feeling I know where you're going. It could bring on either the total demise of humanity, or if somebody decides that they want to like reframe and rework that whole idea, it could possibly turn into something else. But it doesn't look good right now. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 never looked good necessarily. Yeah. you know, I don't. I don't. I can't think of to a 
point in history where religion had a positive impact on society if you were to weigh the pros and cons at any given moment. Um, but then again, I have no right to judge any of it because I wasn't there. So Yeah, I mean, definitely the Judeo-Christian, like, you know, the sort of, you know, monotheistic ideas of religion. You know, I mean, there's only what we can interpret about sort of like the pre-Christian, pre-Judaism, you know, pagan ideas. Um, you know, and a lot of that gets romanticized by people, too, who... Sells a lot of t-shirts. Sells all. Oh, it's big business. <laughs> sells a lot of metal albums, too. It's big business. Man. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept, but ultimately I'm sure there was somebody, you know, some pagan out there who was trying to put his ideas over on someone else because that's the human nature, you know. So, I mean, I'm, I get very nervous when people talk about religion, you know. But, um, so, I mean, you used to live in Greenpoint. Do you remember, um, do you remember uh, Photoplay? Yeah. I was very sad oh, when man. that place closed. I yeah. just, yeah, that place was, um, yeah, I mean, the old, oldest stuff, you know, like I think Greenpoint has this magic about it where it's, it seems to have the last of everything. It's got a lot of vinyl stores. Um, and to I don't, this day, I don't it think does still. Any, I don't think more than one or two still exist outside of Greenpoint in terms like in, in like the five boroughs there's probably very few but there's a lot of them concentrated here and yeah Greenpoint had one of the last video stores in in Brooklyn and maybe New York at large I mean that's a it's wild to think that that's just gone um Kim's you know all this stuff Kim's was like this mecca for many years and um you know for those of you who don't live in New York or have never been here uh Kim's video used to be this like multi-floor like cultural multi uh, venue too they had a few different spots oh that's right actually. they had one on the west side yeah. yep and um you know it was like pretty much any if you want to get a record or video you know vhs tape they had vhs's there for a long Crazy time porn section porn gigantic porn section like yeah. broken down into like every little you know genre you can think of um you know books all that stuff it was all there and then little by little it just got started getting like you know whittled away and you know minimized as time went on and, and some great articles about the owner actually and and some some bizarre inner workings of, of that whole situation and well, where the collection ended up but oh uh, yeah yeah what, what, what I, is I, this I, I think it was village voice who did oh really a really insane almost an expose about huh. what happened because that was the big question what's going to happen to the collection um because when i worked at narrow video in norfolk virginia which still exists they were just granted nonprofit status, actually, to save them, essentially. Um, they were constantly in rivalry with Kim's for who had the largest collection. So even though I lived in Norfolk, I, I knew what Kim's was. And um, so that was, you know, they, they, they pretty much set the record for having the largest collection of films. And they had all kinds of other stuff, too. Laserdiscs, yeah. uh, all kinds of vinyl and CDs and music, too. But the, the video, you know, was out of control and uh, definitely the largest in the collection in the country. And so there is a great story in The Village Voice about how somehow, through some channel, I don't want to mess this up, but I think, if I remember, that the owner is um, South Korean. Sounds and, about and right. He did, and he did, uh, he did a few pretty funny things, but one of them was he used some of the... Um, store funds to make his own movie which uh, um I'm, i assume you could rent at kim's when it was up and running but um then the real bizarre thing is like no one knew what happened to the collection or what was going to happen to the collection and then somehow it ended up in this small town in italy um 
which is apparently the village voice paints the picture of basically like the someone from the mafia acquired it and it went to this small town and they're basically like digitizing everything and like putting it on pirate bay or something like that it's wow. some it's it's a very bizarre story but like the the journalist basically tracked him down and went to this town and uh what he what he found is in the article and it's really fascinating so guy Ritchie should make a movie about that whole saga yeah you know? just these like these crates being put onto a you know like a freighter in the night you know like it could be, yeah it could be pretty good <laughs> Is that is that the truth? Do you think, or is that just some fanciful? Uh, I mean, that's the that's the that's the village voice story. The okay. guy apparently went there and saw this stuff, um, and uh, had to go through a lot of strange channels to find out about it. So I I, I remember it being um, reported as fact, but it's been a while. So definitely check that out. Are you do you stay up on like all the different theories about Egypt and all that? <laughs> you, I mean, there's like you know. Oh, I, I've okay. So I've. Um, I should just get this off my chest here. Yeah, man, um, go for it. You mentioned Alex Gray and stuff, and I, I definitely try to avoid talking about things that uh, could paint me as a completely ridiculous conspiracy theorist. But fuck it, here we go. Um, You're in the right place. If yeah, you want to get yeah. That. Graham Hancock was a big touchstone for me uh, growing up, and uh, Fingerprints of the Gods is an awesome book. That's the starting point for everybody. Yeah, I think. Yep. yeah, and um, yeah. My best friends Josh Woodhouse and I, and back in Norfolk. Um, would uh would just consume all of this stuff and uh we we would you know we were like we we had a metal band and we would we would play music in his attic and then we would watch national geographic and history channel and like just like read up on graham hancock and all this stuff and like ancient mayan philosophies and you know like um and i take all that stuff with a grain of salt but i also feel like you know who's to say what you know, were you there? Okay, no. So this story, this this theory is just as interesting to me as like and widely agreed upon archaeological like establishment would. This, this you know, it's all it's all conjecture. And um, yeah, how did those like rain weatherings get on the Sphinx? You know, <laughs> like like how did yeah. that happen? There's all kinds of interesting questions, and I I think uh, Graham's definitely both. Maybe it's in this this. I don't want to. I always try to avoid voicing opinions about any anyone else who's contributed so much but um i feel like graham and alex gray potentially with things like ayahuasca have kind of like gone way off the rails and it's kind of hard for me to um see where they're coming from now and that's just me but um i remember uh i remember how like how much how influential those books were to me growing up and the guy is the guy is a genius he was also very politically motivated when he first started writing have Grant. you read uh, lords of poverty no i haven't read that, that was his first book okay. um and uh you know that got him in a lot of trouble because he was basically basically doing intensive independent journalism on what uh the red cross was up to um, oh, and all wow. of these all these big like, so-called charities and stuff it's it's a it's a very there's the, it's a pretty polarizing book in terms of like what mainstream media thinks about it versus what people who were following him were thinking about it. But yeah, that's um that was his that was his first real book, and it's it's really intense and and very con- it's a it's con- the whole book is a condemnation of uh, of American charities trying to figure out where the money actually goes and you know but but um yeah then fingerprints of the gods was just a huge influence yeah. Yeah, there's that book Supernatural that he, that he wrote, which sort of ties together like ancient peoples, uh, cave paintings, and the appearance of pyramids in South America and like you know Egypt and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And that 
that's particularly interesting to me because, but I attribute that primarily to the use of psychedelics and how, you know, psilocybin connects to the synapses in the human brain. And like, you know, I think that it's more of like a common experience that causes these people to reflect the same things in their art as opposed to, you know, an outside, you know, extraterrestrial hand in this thing, you know, maybe the pyramid itself is like something that pops up all the time and, you know, in like psychedelic cultures and, you know, but, but the thing that I sort of buy into though, is the fact that, you know, there could have been like a technologically advanced civilization, you know, way, way, way back in, in the past that's been wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah, and, and then to clarify, that's what Graham is, is after, essentially. He's not, yeah. or I don't know what he's up to now, but he's, he was at the time definitely suggesting that there was a lot of evidence towards the, the existence of a, like a Phoenician, perhaps, uh, boating, like a boating culture. Yeah. Like a very advanced, uh, very adept at astronomy um, and, and architecture. Um, culture and you know he talks about things like atlantis and like the root of the word coming from like a couple different cultures across oceans using the same word for it and and using the same symbolism for it so all that stuff's very interesting to me again i have no ability to suss out what's real or what isn't but i remember to bring this one to a close like uh a couple years ago um i was passing through dc and we stopped at the uh, House of the Temple, which was, um, and this is this is probably right before I was starting the Nam project. But uh, House of the Temple is like the, um, it's the uh, southern headquarters for the um, Scottish Rite Freemasonry, mm-hmm. and, and you yeah. know it's this big marble and stone building, um, sort of like a neoclassical building in uh, in Washington D.C. And you can, you know, any, anyone can take a tour of it. And they have a really big library, too. And so, of course, we, we went in there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's flanked by these sphinxes, on these big, huge steps like the Lincoln Memorial. And it's, it's all very ominous and cool looking. And there's a lot of winks going on with all this, like, ancient culture stuff. And so we took a tour. Um, and, then, uh, and then we just went to the library. And the library was fascinating. Um, and... What was what was prominently displayed on the shelf, but all of Graham Hancock's books. Really, and uh, you know how like you'll go like there's a reading table. You'll yeah. go in every library, and sometimes there's like the big, huge like uh, it's the thing that uh, you can put larger books in. Oh, right, that helps yeah, you like open called. them up. Yeah, and featured on that thing was uh, the Secret Teachings of All Ages by. Um, oh man. Manly P. Hall. <laughs> See? See? Yeah. That was <laughs> uh, yeah. Manly P. Hall's uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages, which is a, a big, um, it's, it's one of the, one of the coolest things to come out of like the, the early half of the uh, 20th century. It's this, uh, he basically, you know, he was a 33rd degree Mason, Mason and yeah. um, he was a scholar and an archivist. And um, he sort of started a, almost like a, a movement that what like eventually grew into a sort of new age. But, um, you know, or in the twenties in the 1920s, he was, you know, he was this little guy talking about, uh, Egyptology and Greek myth and what the pyramids may actually be and like how they tie to masonry and how masonry is, um, in essence, a preservation of all of these ancient secrets. Um, and we spent hours in that library and just, 
looking at, they had so many, they had such a wide abundance of books on Lemuria and Atlantis and all these, all these things. And, and they seem to take it pretty seriously. I mean, they're also, they also have a great sense of humor. So maybe who knows, but when you, when you, when you look at the symbolism and Masonic architecture and what's in these libraries all over the country, they, they seem to be into some pretty cool stuff and they seem to, they seem to, be open to these ideas, which I did not expect at all. Yeah, I mean, like, D.C. is, like, rife with, like, <laughs> occult, yeah. you know, ancient sort of, like, you know, architecture and symbology and, and geometry and all this, like, you know, I mean, of course. it's it's funny, like, you don't even have to look that hard to see it either, you know what I mean? It's like, you just We're both wearing tinfoil hats right now, by the way. You can't see it, <laughs> but um, we put them on before we started the interview. <laughs> Mine's glowing, so is his. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, you you, you know, you, you just think of the government as like this stuffy sort of like right wing. Very, I mean, it is for the most part uh, very conservative. But then when you go down, the people that founded this country were Masons, you know, and obviously in the 200 plus years that the United States has been in existence, we've gotten way far away from maybe the original principles that might have founded this country, you know. And um, but yeah, you don't have to look that hard in, in D.C. To, to find like occult structures and you know all this other stuff, you know. So you were talking about, um, <laughs> and that's why I chose styrofoam for the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's built to last styrofoam, right? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. It's like how how in in Egypt, you know, they built the pyramids <laughs> out of stone so they would last. They built it out of styrofoam, actually. If you read Graham Hancock's books. Uh... The, the fingerprints of the styrofoam. It, uh, it, he goes into detail about that, but um, I'll leave that to him. And conceivably, <laughs> styrofoam would last as long as stone, probably. Right? It's like this completely synthetic, yeah, you know, everlasting of you know material, right? Yeah, that's yeah. I think um, there's a great George Carlin uh, sketch called "Saving the Planet," and uh, he talks about um, plastic being here a lot longer than us once we destroy ourselves and, and that what is the meaning of life why are we here and the answer is plastic to make plastic yeah maybe that'll be like the new uh, ra- you know the new species to take over the planet it's yeah like AI conscious <laughs> plastic yeah you know, maybe that's my yeah. next obsession is uh, Elon Musk suggesting that um, tr- experiments with artificial intelligence are essentially summoning the demon as he put it and uh, plastic would be the perfect vehicle for that silicon uh, I mean, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, even even like with CERN and, you know, all the, you know, the large, the Hadron. Um, that's Haldron Collider? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of uh, people out there. This is getting really weird. <laughs> this, this is my daily life, man. This isn't weird at all. This is what I think about. This is all the stuff I read about. So this isn't weird at Me all. Me too. It's very, this is very natural yeah, this for is, both this of is, us, I imagine. You know, not. I'm not crazy, you. guys. I swear. <laughs> Unless that's cool. Unless that's your thing. If that's your thing, I'm totally nuts. <laughs> and so is Mike. But that, that's kind of like what a lot of, you know, there's like these uh, meditators on, on CERN that it's going to, you know, open up some portal to another <laughs> dimension. And, and, you know, these demons and extra dimensional creatures are going to... They, those people who talk about that, they always um, reference that, that movie, The Mist, the, the Stephen King short story, The Mist. Oh, don't know it. Oh, man. Yeah. You got to see that one. It's good. <laughs> You know how, uh, you know this like portal gets opened up and these like creatures come in and, you know, wreak havoc on. You know. Oh, I've heard about that. Yeah, I've heard it's pretty good. I've heard I've heard the movie adaptation's pretty good too. 
The cool thing about that movie, there's a version out there. I mean, the movie came out for theatrical release in, in color. And, um, oh, they, yeah, there's a black and white oh, version, Oh, the black right? and white one is I've where it's I've heard about that. Yeah, my roommate told me about that. Yeah. yeah. The black, totally different vibe, man. It has, like, the vibe of, like, some, like, old school, like, giant ant, like, science fiction movie. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. just, you know. Yeah, it's supposed to be pretty neat. Yeah, it's really cool. It's on my list. White. Definitely check that one out. I don't, I don't see much modern horror, and I, I probably should, but um, that's definitely on the list there. There's um, I do a whole other podcast on horror with one of my buddies, Mike. And um, most for me, horror, what's what's happening is European stuff. Like, yeah, there's a lot of cool like French horror that's been coming out in the last like ten years. Yeah, um, here and there, there's like a decent American horror movie that's made. Um, you know, there's kind of some underground stuff that's really cool, like a low budget stuff. And uh, there's this guy named Jim Van Beber who's like, oh, I heard about this guy. What did he do? What are some of the um, well, that's a good question because uh, most people will probably can't even find his movies at this point. But he's um, why do I know that name? He did a movie on the Manson family a while back. Yes, and yeah. He was he'd been working on that movie for ten years to complete it. And um, wait, this was this the one that Phil Anselmo helped with? Yeah, yeah, okay, yep. yeah. Phil Anselmo did like some voices in it, and um, he actually did a documentary about Down. You know, one of Phil's Phil Anselmo's bands, and right, yeah. um. He's done a bunch Not of shorts. Phil. One of my favorite ones is a call is a film called My Sweet Satan, which mm-hmm. is a, a short film, loosely well, loosely based on the life of uh, Ricky Casso, who uh, was, you know, one of these like he, he wasn't part of like you know the Church of Satan or anything, but he was just like this like satanic teen. Yeah. Who um you know murdered some took acid and, like murdered people yeah. and there was like this I mean that you was might even have heard panic, about it right Yes in yeah, the yeah, 80s. yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, Ricky Casso was like, when I was a kid growing up, it was in the news. And, um, you know, I heard about this guy on Long Island. And there's a, I remember there's a photograph of him, or they have a video on the news of him coming out of the police car. And he has like this ACDC, like three-quarter sleeve, like <laughs> shirt on. But it was like an ACDC shirt that I'd never seen before. It had like some devil on it and stuff. Because, you know, usually ACDC, there's like Angus Young, the logo, like, you know, back They don't go back. there too often. Yeah, yeah they're, they're not a satanic band. It's not like Slayer or something like that. But he had, maybe it was like a homemade shirt, but it was like, it had this like devil face on it. So they pulled him into jail and then he hung himself. And you were like, I want that shirt. I wanted that shirt, man. Who is that band? Yeah. But he killed himself. He never went to trial because he hung himself in jail. Yeah. So he made this film about him, you know, and acid and heavy metal and all that sort of great stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Van Bever is like one of these like guys where I don't know what it, Maybe his personality, maybe he was too much of a wild man to really like have a successful career in a commercial sense that is um, extremely talented. Everything was done like completely just with his will, like no money. Um, literally, the guy like would donate blood to, to get money to <laughs> that's, live, that's live in poetic. a basement, live in yeah. a basement, keep his expenses low and make <laughs> to make his movies. Yeah. Okay, so you got to love that. You got to respect that completely. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> we can all relate to that. And um, none, no, no, you know, professional actors. It was all just friends. But if that's you, how I like to work as well. Yeah. But if you watch his films, like he is able to get these like very, very high level performances out of people who just have no real acting experience. Well, I think that's the. I mean, that's what I try to do. Um, is find people that already are the person you want to see. And so, like, there's, 
there's I never looked at a headshot in my life, and I hope I never do. Like there's there's like um, there's so many interesting people in the city, and and they you know half of them you just you just okay well I just need you to say this and say this and you're oh yeah you're angry you know <laughs> and then like that's all and then just let them go do it a couple times sometimes they get it off you know it's just I love working with people who already are those characters um, and sometimes those people will give me the idea for a character character will form around the person I know um, it's, it's, a, it's a very affordable way to move and it's uh, often yields brilliant results yeah yeah yeah, so you know, it's so when when you uh, you know put together these projects, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, there's actually quite a few. You know, typically there's quite a few people that are in these outside of the bands. You know, there's all these different characters floating around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's an interesting way of casting it, I guess. Yeah. So you were talking about the the Giger, uh, this archive of film that's mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. Did you see the uh, the documentary Dark Star? Uh, yeah, I actually got to see that um, in, in advance of uh, of it coming out, and uh, it's yeah. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. So it's great. Is this stuff ever going to be, you know, surface anywhere or yeah? Or the fi- what's, what's we've what's done? Going we've on done two that? festivals. Uh, I, I showed I showed a few things um, on my own at Spectacle Theater, things that you could find shitty bootlegs versions of on YouTube, um, like uh, Giger's Alien and uh, Necronomicon, and um, a few other shorts like Debbie Harry music videos he did. And uh, there's also there's a couple other bizarre short ones he did um, very early. Um, Heim, Heim Killer, which is sort of centered around a sculpture of his, and then uh, High, which is a, a sort of ex, it's sort of um, it just someone filmed and slowly panned over all of his early black and white pen and ink work, which is my favorite stuff yeah. of his. Um, it gets a lot less attention than his airbrush stuff. But it is by far my favorite. It's, it's there's something far more sinister about it, in in, in um, kind of a high art sort of way. Uh, it's, it's it's very wicked, and you can see his influences a little more before he became such an original voice. Then this stuff was very influenced by Aubrey Beardsley, someone I'm also extremely influenced by. Um, just uh, incredible stuff. So, yeah, getting on a tangent, but that's the point of a conversation. But essentially. We did those two. We did that festival. I did that festival myself. I decided, okay, well, we're gonna do some actual press for this thing, so I should probably contact the Giger Estate, and it's a perfect excuse to contact the Giger Estate because I want to talk to these people um, and just let them know what's going on and see if they could get their approval. So I go to the website and uh, I saw. I'm trying to look for some kind of contact info, and of course, I figured I wouldn't find anything. But then there's a, a section on the website that says agent. And uh, you go to it, and it's Leslie Barony. And I noticed that the phone number was a 212 number. I was like, oh, shit, he lives in New York. So I call him up, he answers, yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just start talking, and we, we hit it off immediately. And I showed him the trailer that I had put together for the spectacle thing. He loved it. Uh, he approved the event. Um, and then we started talking after that and I was, and then he was like, well, oh, well, I was thinking, you know, his, the end, first anniversary of his death, this is in 2015 is coming up soon. Um, why don't you and I work together on doing something big? And I was like, that's fantastic. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. Leslie, I know that there are some films out there that no one's seen that he's done. Uh, there are some Holy grails for me with this stuff. And, um, one of them is a film called Swiss Made 
so in some cases it's called Swiss made 2069. Sometimes it's called Swiss made just by itself. And so there's a guy he worked with a lot. There's two guys, two, two filmmakers he worked with predominantly, um, in Switzerland, F FM Muir. And before that, um, no, J.J. Whitmere and F.M. Muir. So sorry. The Swiss like that. They like the uh, having initials. H.R. Giger. Yeah. yeah. It's a big thing it's a with thing. the Swiss. The know? three names and the two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom G. Warrior. Yeah. yeah. There's always yeah. an initial in there somewhere. You know, Tom G. Warrior works for Giger. Uh, that I've known for a long time, yeah. actually. Yeah. 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 So I've got to e- I've emailed with them, but I haven't met him yet. Um, After we're done with this podcast, I have to show you something that's a bit of a talisman for me. Oh, awesome. And it's actually sitting right over there in that black case. Oh, cool. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. All right. All right. Sounds good. And uh, yeah, so like uh, I, I, I knew that there were some films out there that, that he had done that, that no one had seen the light of day of. Maybe they screened them once or twice in Switzerland. Uh, maybe they hadn't screened them at all. And um, those films were Swiss Made by F.M. Muir and uh, Tag Trom, which is a, another one by F.M. Muir. And then um, Passagen. Which was, I think, I think that was also FM Muir, yeah. J.J. Um, Whitmer wasn't until Necronomicon. So, Swiss Made is an actual narrative, loose narrative sci-fi film made in 1969. Wow. In the Summer of Love by these two fucking nihilist, proto-goth weirdos, Giger and FM Muir, um, in Switzerland. And it's a dystopian sci-fi film, and it's the first ever appearance of Giger's... Giger made a prosthetic costume for this alien creature and his dog <laughs> in this movie. And um, the, the, the creature essentially, I won't spoil anything, but the creature essentially uh, roams Switzerland, like futuristic Switzerland, with a, uh, he's got sort of like a Super 8, or I think it's a 16 millimeter camera built into his face. And so he's got this whole prosthetic outfit that Giger made. And uh, so that I knew that existed. I'd seen stills of it. And I was like, Leslie, can you get me this? And he was like, yeah, the prints are sitting in the garage. Uh, I'll talk to Carmen. Carmen Giger is his widow, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, next thing I know, I was cleaning up and adding subtitles to Giger's Alien, which no one's ever seen anything but a shitty Japanese Laserdisc bootleg you can find on, on YouTube. I was cleaning up uh, Tagtrom, which is a... Um, it's a it's a 40 minute film showing like a collaboration between Giger and two other painters. They paint this big room together, the three of them. And then uh, Passagen, which is the sort of first ever loosely made surreal documentary about him and his work when he was doing the Passagen series. Um, both Passagen, um, Necronomicon, which is another documentary of his work once he started doing airbrush stuff. And then uh, Giger's Alien, which is basically his wife at the time, Mia, and J.J. Whitmere filming him while he's working on the set of Alien, building everything yeah. himself. Like, um, I, I read the, uh, there's like a, um, a book, like a journal of that whole experience. Too. Yeah. I've read that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, Giger's Alien, the book, right? Yeah. Um, but all three of those movies are scored by Brain Ticket, and then the, the synth guy from Brain Ticket, Yol Von Venderbrook, I think it is. It's a really long last name. And uh, I might have mispronounced it, but uh, so it's, you've got these three really atmospheric, sort of surreal documentary art pieces that were taken in the '70s, like the height of his like creative output. Wow! And and they're each one's very different. 
um, and they, they interview collectors, they interview his friends, um, they show him in his studio, there's like a great scene where he's like brushing his teeth, I mean, it's just really great stuff, and so we cleaned all this stuff up, put it all together, Leslie had a bunch of other documentaries that were made later in his life, and I also got to clean up, um, it's called A New Face of Debbie Harry, and it's a documentary they made where it's basically him, Debbie Harry, and Chris Stein hanging out and working on her two music videos that he directed for her. Mm-hmm. And so we, had, we put all these together and did three nights at the Museum of Art and Design, and now we're going to take this whole thing to Transylvania next year oh. and uh, possibly a few other places as well. And so the, the plan is to do a few festival things, basically how much free transportation and yeah. fun trips can we get out of it? And then, um, and then after that, we're going to talk about organizing a, a proper DVD release or something wow. of that nature. That's amazing, man. I can't. I hope that happens soon. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I, mean, I hope I don't get hit by a bus or something before this stuff's available, or get, you know, <laughs> asteroid like hit me in the head, you know, take me out. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, that's but, great stuff. And I can't believe I can't believe that so few people have, have seen this stuff, considering how many people there are out there who love aliens and alien and yeah. You know, it's funny how there's uh, a lot of these like sort of art artifacts that um, a lot of people want to see that just aren't available. Um, one of the things that comes to mind, I don't know if you're, if you're ever a Gun Club fan, the band the Gun Club. Yeah. I, um, I interviewed Terry Graham. On, he was a guest on the podcast yeah, a while back. Yeah, I saw back, that. Yeah. And he, uh, I asked him, like, what, you know, there's that book, that Jeffrey Lee Pierce uh, lyric book. And I'm like, it's been out of print for you know, decades <laughs> and you try to buy one, they're like $700. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, it's just like a, you know, like, uh, he's probably holding on to a, the, the last few and selling, waiting for them to sell on eBay before he releases. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Keep the price up. But you know, they, it's, I'm it's kidding. not even like, uh, you know, it's like one of those, uh, two thirteen sixty one, um, you know, releases that came out in the nineties. So it's, yeah. you know, it's like a paperback. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and, and it's just like, I guess Jeffrey's family, is holding on to the rights because, you know, Henry Rollins put out the version of it on 213. Yeah. And I figured, you know, if anyone was going to, you know, would be diligent about keeping that in print, it would be him because he's a huge fan and he generally does like, you know, pretty, pretty good job of doing that stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a real, like, and once again, he's like a great American songwriter. All this material should be out there for people to enjoy, but it just isn't. So I'm excited that this Giger thing is actually seeing the light of day, you know? Yeah. And why and why hasn't it until now? I think I think it's it's you know, the man passed away, and um, if you've seen Dark Star, you'll, you can see what his house is like. Oh yeah. I mean it's a it's a museum, but it's a it, there's there's stacks and stacks of of art that no one's ever seen. That you just he's just constantly creating things, and Tom G. Warrior and a few other people, it's it's their job to make sense of all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's overwhelming for Carmen. There's, there's so much there, um, to, to parse through. So things are just slowly coming forward and seeing the light of day and it, it takes a lot of work and, and, you know, he was never that commercially successful as an artist, so there's not that much money behind it anymore. And, um, which is wild to think, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing too. And it's like, I think, um, one of the things that seemed sort of apparent to me was that, uh, his success as a, as a sci-fi horror designer in some ways might have stood in his way in becoming like a, a fine art. Well, that's what happens, you know. Yeah. Um, 
because he was he was hanging out with Dali. Yeah, he was hanging out with uh, Yodorowsky. I mean, these guys were all close. And if you see the Dune documentary, you know why they were hanging out. But I mean, he was you know he was recognized by Dali as an equal. You know, this guy was a brilliant surrealist, um, and he had a lot of different phases, and each phase is is equally eye popping and wildly imaginative. And uh, what happens when you enter the realm of pop culture? You know, you 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 cross this sort of Rubicon that that the uh, the high art world doesn't want anything to do with. Oh, that's you know this guy is now like he's now the property of the masses. And, and I spent a lot of time in the art world. Like the whole draw behind buying a piece of art is that is that you're buying a piece of that person that no one else can have. It's one of a kind um, or a limited edition of prints. Right. And, and for the more the more public the art. You know, the more, uh, like, the artist Swoon is a great example. Um, you know, like, the more public the artist, the, or, the, or the more the artist gets involved in, like, public programs or even, like, charity, charitable things, I mean, the less they become kind of like a tight-knit commodity because the, there's nothing, they're, they're opening themselves up to a greater public sphere and they're recognized more by the public. I mean, one of the, you know, ex, the notion of exclusivity is what's driving the prices of some of a lot of this blue chip artwork. And I think, um, once he did alien and he, you know, that movie became a household name. Um, it, it just, it changed his perception entirely. Yeah. It hurt him very much. So, and then he kind of, you know, and then he, of course, and, and he could have kept going with that and who knows what would have happened. But he had a lot of trouble. He had such a terrible experience working with 20th Century Fox. Yeah, that, that's, God or not that's indicated in that journal that yeah. he wrote. And, uh, yeah. And it just doesn't seem like that's really part of his character is to continue to work with Hollywood. Yeah. You know? And then all the sequels Few came people out. survive it without, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it seemed like, uh, you know, the extreme music. I just killed all of my chances <laughs> <laughs> before I had any. Yeah. It seems like the extreme music sort of scene is really like when, when you go. You know, in that film, there's like, you know, lines of people that are obviously like metal fans, tattoos. tattoos and, yeah, you know. he, he would say he said that was his, it was the greatest honor for him if someone got his work tattooed on them. Yeah, you know. Um, Have you ever, um, you know, I mean, your 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 videos are very, uh, you know, cinematic and they tell a story. Have you? Do you have any aspirations of doing any films, like just independent of actual? Uh, that's that's all I want to do. That's yeah. all you want to do. Okay. Yeah, this this is you know it. This is I, I I love doing music videos and um, it's it's not easy as you as you mentioned earlier in terms of like the nature of the music industry it's almost non-existent nowadays um, thanks to the internet and thanks to downloading um, but I, I love doing it and for me it's it's an exercise it's it's a way for me to try out all kinds of different ideas and techniques and flesh out all kinds of little narratives that I, and it's all basically preparation because yes, I, I want to, I want to make films and, um, I think I'm going to make a concerted effort to make that transition pretty soon. Um, I will continue to do music videos cause I love doing them, but, uh, there's, there's other ways to survive where I won't be late on rent. <laughs> and, uh, if I can figure that out, then I will start making short films with the excess funds if there are any. 
and hopefully those will lead to other things. Yeah, I mean, just just going to this uh, festival in Transylvania. I just I just came back from the same festival I'll be a part of next year. Um, they had the Behemoth video actually. Oh wow! It was okay. in the short films competition, and um, going to these festivals, it, it, it it's uh, it's very invigorating to get to meet other filmmakers and just like-minded people from all over the world. And um, it really got me going. It's like, okay, I'm 33 and I'm not getting any younger. And it's time to, it's time to make that move. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's why I try to almost to a fault because some of these videos I end up making are so, so weighted by these narratives and trying to fit them in sometimes can get in the way of like making a fluid experience of a video. But but uh, I, I am very much narrative driven with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's like watching these tiny little epic, you know, four minute movies. And uh, I'm glad you think so. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I'm like, wow, I'd love to see like any one of those storylines, like even even that nom video, you know, like I want to see like that expanded into like a, you know, a 60 minute, 90 minute epic film. Yeah. Like, you know, what happens to this guy? You know, what happens to Horace when he lands on Earth? You know, like what adventures does he have? Like, you know, why did Set murder Osiris? You know, like all these. <laughs> yeah. It's like all this, these like things that you don't see that you want to learn more about. Yeah. In the yeah. Narrative. Why did ISIS chop Osiris up into a thousand pieces and then like, yeah, you know. So hey, there's another uh, another thing that you have on your your uh, your YouTube channel that's uh, it's like that political thing you got on there. It's like this little trailer. A trailer. It's a trailer. What, uh, what the hell? Is political it? thing. Trailer. Um, oh, is it? Um, I got Is it a lecture? Down. No, that one. That one is yeah. That one's the <laughs> Afghanistan thing. I oh yeah, yeah. That, but then there's uh. Yeah, the YouTube page is a little dated, um, because so many of my videos have been. Um, as, as you work with bigger bands, their, their labels will release the videos on their pages. So, to get a better sense of my work, I would go to my website, which is just zevdeans.com, or um, or the Vimeo page, which it's is a, which I host everything on. Run to the hill. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, what's up with that, man? <laughs> oh no. Uh, oh no! Um, just making some uh, some funny uh, Hillary Bernie stuff. Uh, that was just a random like. Uh, what I do is like I, I'm kind of nocturnal, and so. Um, but you're up early though. I was up early today. I've gotten emails <laughs> from you at like seven in the morning. Oh, it's because I haven't slept yet. Ah, okay. All right, cool. Got it. Um, so I tend to I tend to be up pretty late, and uh, and. You know, at some point I'll be done with a day and then like this other part of me will take over and I'll just post like 50 Bernie related things on Facebook and it's a disaster. And then on the you're next day I'll come back. Bernie Sanders? Yeah, uh, very much so. Okay, yeah. cool. Um yeah. Um, yeah, but that was just some little thing messing around. Like, uh, I don't even, I thought I took that down. I'll have no, to take it's it still down there, you mention it. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just one of those random things. But um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely, it, it doesn't come across often in my work, but um I'm pretty politically obsessed in, in some certain circumstances. And uh, I was very much, I had a very um, intense professor in, in school. And um, he, he, he was actually, he was, <laughs> he was uh, one of the weathermen. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a professor of yours. Yeah. And, and I, I got to know him well enough to, to uh, for him to tell me that. Wow. Um, and it's it's you know it's fine now. He, I think he's cleared himself of all. Uh, he didn't. He doesn't have any blood on his hands. But uh, I don't think I would have respected him any less if he did. Honestly, yeah. um, 
but yeah, he was a real um, kind of populist anarchist uh, fire breather, and uh, that's where I, that's that class is where I learned about fascism, and I learned about um, just all all of my political background came from him, and then a uh, another teacher I had this guy Dr. Han, who um, he is a Chinese professor who grew up in Maoist China and and was still very much pro Mao. Um, living in the, living in the states, and I remember one of the things that we did in his class, which I'll never forget, was he um, he showed us footage of the the People's Republic um, Army building schools, and then that same footage being used in American news um, to show that they're demolishing schools, and then he showed us um, a legitimate translation of Mao's um, autobiography in in English. And then he showed us um, the the widely disseminated um, American publisher translation of that book and what they changed and why they changed it. And so um, from a very early um, stage in my life, um, I had uh, I had some I had some very um, interesting perspectives granted to me through my professors. So politically, I'm, I'm I, I tend to consider myself relatively aware, but uh, pretty charged with it, too. Yeah, as I sometimes I can't shut it off, and I, I, this, I'm this sure it annoys a, a lot of people that engage with me on social media. This is a terif- apologize. terrifying year then for, uh, you know, this, this is like, <laughs> yeah. a, a, historically, this oh, is yeah. definitely something that's going to be, I feel like you we're just added two hours to our conversation. Yeah, <laughs> <by the way. laughs> I just, I feel like this is like a, one of those like pivotal points in U.S. history, I think. like It's interesting. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, I, th- I think that we're gonna we're gonna definitely get some entertainment out of this, but um, that'll come with uh, some fear as well. I think uh, yeah, I'm I just, almost I'm I'm I, it's hard to tell who would be worse, and and that's I probably sound ridiculous for saying that, but um, I got the facts to back it up, folks. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's like you know living in New York, you kind of you're thinking okay, assuming that you want the de- you know the Democrats to win, since you're you we're in a we're in a blue state. So you can vote for like the Green Party or something like that, because I, I for me, I have a hard time voting for uh, for Hillary. You know? Yeah. So it's with a certain level of confidence, even though I, if I did vote for Hillary, I wouldn't be voting for her. I'd be voting against Donald Trump. Yeah. And uh, the other guy that he's running with is vice president. The um, oh, yeah. What that is guy's a nightmare. Yeah. I can't remember his name, though. Who but knows? that guy's a nightmare. So he's the silent killer. To make Trump's myself feel one. better, I can vote for the Green Party. Yeah. With still having confidence that Trump will not secure New York State. Yeah. Okay. But the, the idea of... First of all, I'm embarrassed that Trump has even gotten this far in... He's gotten the nomination. But are you surprised? I, you given, know... Given the way, the way things are. <laughs> the way, the, you know, how, like how loud, like the loudest voice in the room will often get the most attention so. culturally i mean all right 10 years ago i probably would have a different opinion i would i would i would have a different feeling but i think now because in general the way culture in the united states is going is that it's like little substance and like bright colors and loud noises just make sure this oh. is like primarily what gets people's attention now yeah so that makes sense in in that using that logic that a guy like donald trump would have won the republican nomination for president of the united states 
but you know back in like 99 or 2000 i would have been like it's no it's a that's is a joke there's no yeah. possible way this could ever happen yeah but i mean that's even more upsetting that than the fact that he's actually running is that people support him you know a guy with no political experience and a debatable you know unsuccessful business career i mean the guy's been bankrupt he's you know he just slaps his name on stuff. I mean, he doesn't even really outright own a lot of the things <laughs> that you see around New York City. You yeah. know, that the Trump Tower, like the Trump Country Club out in Jersey. Like, I don't think he actually owns any of those things. I just think his name is on that. Mm -hmm. So there's this perception of him being a successful power broker. <laughs> and he's a reality TV star, for God's, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? Well, I think, he, they think this is basically a continuation of that career, yeah. that aspect of his career. I, I, don't, I don't know if he necessarily plans on I don't know if he's thought it through in terms of what happens when he gets there um, unless of course he's just being paid for by Hillary but that's a that's a widely uh, passed around conspiracy theory but um, yeah I think he's uh, it's like um, I don't know it's like you're supposed to ignore bullies right you're supposed to like not you know if you if you ignore them they'll go away but um the media did the opposite and they gave him as much attention as possible whether it was bad or not anything it's like a villain in a video game they always grow when you hit them right so it's like uh the more the more slander you give in his direction the just the bigger he gets because his name's just being repeated everywhere and people sort of did it to themselves it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as far as i see it and um i hope we learn our lesson when uh he wins because we chose to uh or maybe we didn't even choose, but we somehow ended up with the least favorable candidate for the Democratic side. And uh, I think I think he's going to win. I think he's going to beat her. I think um, I might even feel some weird sort of morbid relief in that just because I feel, I feel personally cheated by what yeah. she has been up to. But, um, you know, I... I I don't even know if we need to get into any of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's yeah. it's just something. I mean, it's only a few months away, so yeah. at this stage of the game, you know. But uh, but I mean, I think he, I think Bernie Sanders actually, on a populist level, actually is is able to would be able to beat uh, Donald Trump though. Well, his numbers are way better. Yeah, and I think he appeals to a lot of the independents that would that could go either way, you know. But. Um, that's, you know, <laughs> at the very least, maybe this is going to be, um, you know, the death knell of the two party system. You know, maybe it'll... that's my biggest hope that could come yeah. out of this. I mean, when you look at a place like Germany or, you know, you look at these 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 countries with, with multiple party systems. Yeah, there's a lot of arguing, but a lot of a lot of different ideas are represented and actually, you know, get put up for debate and passed. And I think uh the Green Party is a big part of a lot of places like Germany. Yeah. Then that's why these countries are leading in, in green green uh, transitions being made. And so I, th I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to see a big push um, just in terms of how many people got mobilized by this thing. Um, how many of the youth, how much of the youth vote came forward and uh, got excited about politics. Um, and I hope their disenfranchise their disenfranchisement pushes them to action as opposed to being jaded which is something i think our generation is more used to yeah that's that's once again that kind of goes back to what i was saying about this change in consciousness you know like you know i don't know this is like some i know this sounds like 
kind of like bullshit, but it's like, <laughs> you know, when I think about like 2012, I'm being polite. And, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to 2012 idea of like, you know, a shift into a new epoch, you know? So maybe, you know, this whole thing with Bernie Sanders, even getting as far as he did with such radical ideas. I mean, these ideas don't seem so far out in, in on the coasts, you know, like in New York city or San Francisco or, you know, progressive places like, you know, like Seattle or whatever. Yeah. But like in the interior of the country though, where people, I mean, it's the coast often forget about. Yeah. What's that? Which the coasts often forget about. Yeah. There's the rest of the country, and the rest of the country has uh, far less access to information socially and culturally. Yeah, you know, and I think that he still managed to get as far as he did despite all that, you know. Um, I think, yeah, once, once he, if, you, if, if you're in one of these middle American towns and, and the main source of, his, of information are telling you that immigration is the reason you're losing your job and immigration is the reason that... Uh, that you're not getting paid as much as you could, um, which is a roundabout way of saying that like things like NAFTA were horrible ideas. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, when you actually listen to what he has to say, I think that's that's what was changing a lot of people's minds, even in Middle America. And uh, if he had a little more time, or if he uh, if we had a open primary in every state, I think we'd see very different results. But yeah. You know, apparently I'm there not was a politician some, or a journalist, so there were some demands <laughs> made for him to give uh, his endorsement to Hillary too. So you know, well, he had to do that. Yeah, yeah, he had to. That's part of the rules. He's supposed to. He's still competing. He's not. He's not done technically. Um, FDR had to have had to endorse the, the the opponent, and then he won the contested convention. Um, I don't think that's going to happen this no. time at all. But uh, Bernie did. Those are that's in the rule book for him to be able to go to the convention. Somehow I knew we'd end up talking about this. <laughs> for him to be able to go to the convention at all, or make any kind of impact, or keep his speakers, or, or be able to make a speech, it was in the it's in the rule book that he has to endorse the presumptive nominee, and that is why he did that, and that's also why he did that in the most unenthusiastic way possible. If you rewatch that speech, it's very entertaining because he's he's basically talking about how close he came. And I think, you know, The Onion did the best coverage of it. They said that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders claims that Hillary Clinton is not Donald Trump in ringing endorsement. <laughs> like, like he, he, he endorsed her as little as he possibly could. Um, and, he, and he did have to do that in order right. to have still keep his seat at the DNC. So, you know, there's a lot of conjecture about all that stuff. But we're not going to know what happens until it's done. Yeah, it's... Um I don't know, man. It's terrifying. I just got a, a message from a friend in Germany. Their band is planning to come over here, but they're like pushing it to like next year or some shit because they think that, you know, Trump whims is going to be some kind of riots and stuff like that. So they're like, I don't think we're going to come to your country in 2016. I think we're going to wait till 2017 <laughs> to see how, uh, how, how you guys are doing before we come over there and try <laughs> to get into your country. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm like, oh, I hope. Wow, I I didn't think it was going to be that bad, but maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe it is. Yeah. You know? So uh, where can people check out your work? You have a YouTube channel <laughs> and you got... Uh... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the YouTube, like I said, is kind of dated just because um, I ended up hosting a lot of the videos on uh, the bands and label sites now. As the bigger they get, the more control they have over things like that. So um, my the website is just my name, which is zevdeans.com. And then... Um, 
if you go to Vimeo, it's Panorama Programming at, v- at Vimeo, and that's uh, most of the stuff is there too. Cool. So yeah, that's, are you on like Twitter and Facebook and all that sort of stuff? Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm I'm, I'm again by uh, this is my multiple personality disorder. There's a part of me that is like has like sort of diarrhea of the mouth on Facebook. So I'm debating with how long I should keep that up and running, but uh, I am there currently. Yeah. It's tough, man. I try to, I, I put a lot of discipline into not saying too much on Facebook. Yeah. You know, I just like, it just, you can go down these like weird rabbit holes with people. Yeah. There's like all kinds of trolls out there. Yeah. Well, I just find myself uh, getting sucked into political arguments or starting them with yeah. people that I'd probably get along with really well. You know, it's, it's a, uh, I don't know. I feel I feel like it's, I'm, I'm getting a little run down by my own. I'm getting to see how how much crazy I have in me by having access to things like that. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming by, Zeb. That's a pleasure. A, a very good spirited conversation today. Yes, I indeed. And uh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, of course. And uh, what a delicious coffee I had, thanks to Savage Gold <laughs> Coffee. Hey, thanks for the endorsement. Man. <laughs> that wasn't a paid endorsement either. No, that was a ringing endorsement. It was a legitimate endorsement. Heartfelt. Yeah.
Is yeah, we're something? good. Cool. Yeah. This the screen shuts off. And it's like, oh, you know, I gotta just adjust that at some point. Right on. I always get nervous though when I see a black screen like that. Always wonder if it's real. <laughs> Go on for hours with nothing being recorded, <laughs> and it's just like you know. <laughs> that was a nice hangout, you know. 